This podcast is brought to you by eGauge Systems, advanced, affordable, and reliable energy monitoring. The eGauge is a data logger, web server, and energy meter in one device. With revenue-grade accuracy, eGauge can be used to optimize efficiency and for solar monitoring and sub-metering. Learn more at eGauge.net. For the week of June 18th, 2014. This is the Energy Gang from Green Tech Media. Welcome to the show. I'm Stephen Lacey, a senior editor with Green Tech Media in Washington, D.C. The world is in turmoil. Iraq is on the verge of all out civil war. Spain lost its first match to the Netherlands in the World Cup, and Congress is investigating the popular host of the Dr. Oz show for hawking bogus weight loss products. But amidst this change and uncertainty, I can always count on my co-hosts and our listeners to be here. Today, this podcast is one year old. A milestone for us and a nice reminder for how much we love to hear ourselves talk. In Washington, my co-host Catherine Hamilton is with me. She once hated the sound of her own voice, but now has come to realize its power. She is a partner at 38 North Solutions, the clean tech public policy firm you've heard so much about. Catherine, how much? How are you uh, on this one-year anniversary of this podcast? It's been such a whirlwind romance, Stephen. Um, it's been really wonderful, although the sound of my voice I'm still getting used to, and at one and a half times speed, which I know some people listen to, it will it would be grating. <laughs> in New York, it is Jigger Shah, our other co-host, a partner with Clean Fleet Investors. He's also author of a book you may have heard me mention once or twice called Creating Climate Wealth. Jigger, what are you going to do to celebrate today's one-year marker for this show? There is uh, New York Energy Week happening this week, so there's a great party going on tonight. So I'm going to go there and raise a glass with our fellow listeners at the event. All right. And it's somebody else's lucky day, too because he gets to join our birthday slash anniversary, whatever you want to call it. It is Shale Khan, our vice president of GTM Research, who, I should note, has made the most guest appearances on this show of anyone over the last year. Shale, welcome back to the show, sir. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here during your birthday episode of Energy Gang. So Shale's here to digest a very important piece of news. Honestly, in my opinion, one of the biggest pieces of business news we've covered on this show America's largest residential solar installer, Solar City, is becoming a solar manufacturer. We'll walk you through the implications of this shift. Then, in related news, Tesla CEO and Solar City chairman Elon Musk announced he was opening up many of Tesla's patents in an effort to stimulate more innovation in the electric vehicle sector. We will ask why. In our third segment, we'll ask whether oil companies will ever be big investors in renewables, and if it even matters. And to close out the show, we'll dig up something you may not know. Okay, Solar City. Yesterday, the company surprised almost everyone in the solar industry by announcing that it was getting into solar manufacturing. Solar City plans to acquire Solevo, a California-based company producing high-efficiency solar cells and modules based on a hybrid crystalline silicon technology. The company produces cells at 22% efficiency, with a plan to get to 24% efficiency, and modules at 18.4% efficiency. And that gets it in the league of high-efficiency crystalline leader SunPower. 
However, unlike SunPower, which is already at massive commercial scale, Salevo only has a small pilot line in place with plans to build its first commercial line in Buffalo, New York. Solar City said it's going to expand Salevo's plans further and build a one gigawatt cell and module plant over the next two years in New York and potentially expand to multi gigawatts uh, in the coming years. If and when that plant is completed, Solar City would finally become a fully vertically integrated solar firm, joining U.S. companies uh, First Solar, Sun Power, and Sun Edison. So, is this a genius move that will further solidify Solar City's dominance? or an unrealistic plan to scale a commercially untested solar product. Shail Khan, you're our guest. You get the first whack at this today. Uh, what's your take on where SolarCity's going with this? Yeah, it's a good question, and I will admit that it took us by surprise as well. We had been predicting for a while that somebody was going to acquire Salevo, and we had even predicted that it might be Sun Edison. But Solar City getting into it was a surprise to us. But, you know, in the past 24 hours when I've been frantically thinking about this and working with the rest of the GTM research team here to try to make sense of it, uh, we've sort of made more and more sense of it to the point where now I'm at the point that I think it is all dependent on whether Salevo and Solar City through Salevo can hit the targets that they've set out. You mentioned a couple of them. They're planning to build this one gigawatt manufacturing facility in the next two years. That's supposed to be at a gigawatt ramped capacity by the end of 2016. They also at that time are intending to be a 24% cell efficiency, which translates to something north of 20% module efficiency. Uh, and without giving specific cost targets, they do have cost targets built into a significant portion of the price that SolarCity paid for the company. And so they're banking on driving down costs as they do this. So it's all contingent on whether they can achieve all those things. If they can do all those things and hit this roadmap, then you can make a pretty easy argument for why this is a really good decision for SolarCity. It would get them a technology that is cost competitive with the modules they would have otherwise purchased from Chinese manufacturers largely. They'll be tariff-free. They won't be subject to the, the ebbs and flows of supply and demand in the solar industry broadly. And they'll get to do their own innovation around uh, both module manufacturing and then systems because they can also combine this with the ZEP solar racking system because they acquired ZEP last year. So. It's by no means a done deal, but there's definitely a window where if they can execute over the next two years and then beyond that, that uh, this ends up being a really smart decision. The final thing that I'll say, and then I'll hand it to Jigger because I'm sure he has opinions too, is that you mentioned this, but you know it, it isn't completely unprecedented where SolarCity has ended up, which is as a vertically integrated solar company who both manufactures and installs. Uh, they are in the same group now as SunPower and First Solar and Sun Edison. It's just a different way that they got there from being an installer first and then integrating upstream. Sun Edison was maybe the closest corollary to that, but also came at it from a different angle. Mm -hmm. So the the you know path was different, but the end game wasn't so different. Right, Jigger, your thoughts on this? And we have talked about Solar City's strategy in the past. You were skeptical about their vertical integration strategy particularly after they acquired Zep Solar and Paramount Solar. Does this change anything for you at all? No. I mean, I think that, look, I mean, there's certain things that I know about from my state of New York stuff that I can't talk about. But I think um, 
Look, the, the bottom line is, is that the vertical integration strategy means that you're the smartest guy in the room in the entire value chain. And that is completely impossible, in my opinion. I think Sun Edison building modules is a dumb idea. You're talking about areas where you have historically low returns on capital. For people who invest in Solevo or all these other companies, their return on capital is so low that why would you possibly want to burn your capital in that place unless you have free money? Now, SolarCity kind of does have free money. I mean, they have a $7 billion or $6 billion market valuation. Um, they're doing, you know, it's probably one fourth of the volume that Sun Edison's doing. And, you know, and so arguably they have a very highly valued stock price. It's free money. You might as well use it to acquire stuff. But I think vertical integration is always a bad idea. I mean, you know, SolarCity does not, in order for this to be a successful acquisition, they do not, at the end of the day, need Solevo to be vastly superior to any other technology out there. What they need is for the LCOE impact or the, the total dollars per kilowatt hour impact of the Salevo technology that they are using internally to be competitive with what they would have purchased externally otherwise. Right. So that just means they don't need to be competing with the Chinese directly on dollars per watt costs. They need to be competing on dollars per kilowatt hour, which means their efficiency benefit is good. And if they can do that, if it's even just competitive, not necessarily vastly superior, then they've insulated themselves from you know price fluctuations and tariffs and all sorts of other things. Right. But, so, but let me give you the equivalent example of what they could have done. They could have gone to Suniva said, look, we're going to give you $150 million of our stock, which we think is overvalued. We want this much volume from us at the, uh, from you at this price. We're willing to prepay $150 million in stock, which you can immediately cash in and sell if you want to, and give us this, this much volume for this price for the next four years or next five years. Suniva would have done that deal in a heartbeat. They would have had no technology risk. They wouldn't be negotiating you know, all the terms and conditions, which, um, as I understand it, this deal is not done, by the way. And then, you know, you actually, like, you know, mitigate your risk. Why would you possibly get into a business where they've only done, you know, some pilot plants? You and I both know that the industry is littered with people who have successful pilot plants, but never can actually scale up to mass manufacturing. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that's a fair point. And, and you know, there's definitely risk associated with this. And you're absolutely right that, that the industry is fraught with companies that tried to scale up and just couldn't do it. And it wasn't, you know, their roadmaps were not achievable. So again, there's a big caveat attached to this. I will note that SolarCity is employing the strategy that you mentioned too, everything except for doing it in stock. Because a week before they announced this deal, they also announced a 100 megawatt supply agreement with REC Group for modules. So they're doing, you know, some purchasing from a non-Chinese manufacturer. It's not a four-year stock-based deal that you're talking about, but they're doing both things. They just seem to think that, you know, the Salivo technology is going to be competitive enough over the long term and that controlling their own supply is going to insulate them from what has admittedly been a, an extraordinarily volatile market for module purchasing, both on the pricing side and where you can buy from. So you had they had really have to believe that they're they're going to be able to do something that is difficult which is build a cost competitive high efficiency technology at scale in a very short period of time and solar city is nothing if not aggressive and optimistic about their prospects here uh, but if they can't pull that off then they will have wasted at least 200 million dollars worth of stock and maybe 350 mm -hmm. no but they so, may waste more than that though right 
they may actually I mean, do you think Solar City is the best company in the United States at originating new deals? Maybe. Do you think they're the very best company in the world in terms of cost of installation? Maybe. Do you actually think they're the best company in the world at servicing those leases? Maybe. And now you want them to be the best in the world at actually coming out with a high efficiency module. I mean, well, I, I don't know I that they need to be the best. I mean, I think it's overstating they do it need to, to be the best. I mean, otherwise they're going to go out of business in three years. I mean, this notion that they're actually going to be a valuable company for the rest of time, or Sun Edison for that matter, is ridiculous. Wait, why, I mean, why would they need to be the best if they're just basically supplying themselves? Right. Because because we're moving. We're moving so quickly in the residential space. And NRG right now has a yield co that where they're allowed to outsource their FICO scoring to lease dimensions. They're outsourcing their module manufacturing to whoever they're buying from. They're outsourcing their their structures to whoever they're buying from and inverters. And they're outsourcing their installation to over 7,000 installers, the best of the best that they find to install those things. So now you're taking NRG's platform and putting it next to SolarCity's platform. And if that works, NRG could put SolarCity out of business in three years. Well, NRG's trying to put SolarCity out of it. They bought, they acquired Roof Diagnostics to get into the SolarCity business, right? They're that's trying right. to replicate what SolarCity has done. So that's why I think focus is so important. Mm. So clearly there's a lot of technology risk here and the industry has dozens and dozens of stories of companies with pilot plants uh, either in high efficiency uh, crystal and silicon or in SIGs thin film that have failed. However, the long-term strategy is to potentially integrate battery storage, to potentially integrate the racking within the factory, integrate inverter manufacturing, and to have a full-service manufacturing plant where they can control costs along every piece of the installation process. That seems to be very compelling, assuming that they can get the manufacturing piece correct. So very long term you know i i understand what you're saying jigger but there does seem to be a very compelling case here and i'm not ready to dismiss it yeah i wanted to just bring in also one policy point because when i hear the year 2016 which is when they are supposed to be at scale at a gigawatt a year um that to me says that's when the year that the investment tax credit for solar drops from 30 to 10%. And so what they're doing is as Shale had mentioned kind of hedging the commodity price fluctuations in a world that they know is going to have a seriously different look, you know, tax credit um proposition and yet the greenhouse gas rule will be in effect at that point. So they're going to have if they bring in storage into this whole mix which they're starting to do, this like allows them to be really competitive in a world where um, carbon emissions are actually going to start meaning something and are going to be monetized. Related to that, actually, is one other point that is uh, actually more on Jigger's side than on my side, but I'll, I'll say it anyway on your behalf, Jigger, which is that they're essentially, they're, they're leveraged because of the timing of this, right? So they, they have to have this gigawatt fab up and running in 2016, in 2017, the ITC drops to 10% unless it's extended. Uh, that is the time at which they're going to have to be most cost sensitive. So they really have to hit these these targets that they're talking about in order for this to make sense. Or you could imagine it being tough for them to utilize that internal capacity in 2017, and then they have they have a line sitting idle that's tough. So it's you know the timing makes it such that there's even more risk, but Still, if they can hit their targets, I think it's a good idea. Yeah, and, and, and just looking out, Shale, how realistic is it that Solar City is going to be installing enough that 
this one gigawatt factory will uh, supply all their needs and they'll be fine? Well, um, they certainly think they're going to. They're already guiding to do somewhere between 800 megawatts and a gigawatt in 2015 alone. Uh, assuming that they continue to grow at the kind of rate that they have for the past couple of years, we're talking about a gigawatt and a half maybe in 2016. If this, this is a one gigawatt fab that is fully ramped at the end of 2016, then they could more than absorb everything that the factory produces unless something happens to them or they miss their guidance. But thus far, what short tracker record they have, um, they've hit the guidance that they've been talking about. So I'm not one to discount their ability to absorb all that capacity. And that's certainly their intent. They're not intending to sell the modules produced in that Buffalo factory outside Solar City unless they really need to. Yeah, they said that they might. And the one other thing that I would say is just to take the other side of this is that it, I mean, it's always wonderful to see Elon Musk and Lyndon get involved and get people excited. I mean, it certainly is great news in the state of New York. People love the fact that the governor came out with this billion-dollar policy to provide long-term visibility into solar deployment into New York. And suddenly we have, you know, 50 different firms now that have set up offices in New York already because they want to take advantage of this. And you've got Solar City saying they're going to put a billion dollars into the state to actually put up manufacturing. I think it's a great you know, sort of, it's a great sort of uh, give and take that happens with policy. All right. So wrapping this up, Shale, what do you make of their desire to manufacture here in the U.S.? I mean, clearly with the high efficiency product, they can get the LCOE down and they feel like that makes up for perhaps higher labor costs or, or taxation issues. What, what do you make of that, that big play? I mean, they're talking about building a one gigawatt plant, potentially tens of gigawatts over the next decade. How significant is that given the lack of uh, success we've seen in U.S. manufacturing? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I mean, I'll note a couple of things. One, Salevo was already planning on building a factory in New York. It was going to be more like 200 megawatts as opposed to the gigawatts that Solar City's now talking about and had already been negotiating with the state of New York and was getting some incentives from the state of New York in order to cite the manufacturing there. So this isn't happening in a vacuum and they're getting some incentives for it. I think, you know, the only the the main argument you can make for manufacturing in the US is if you have a proprietary technology that is going to be sufficiently competitive that you can manufacture in the US and still compete with with products getting shipped into the US from lower cost locations. Even given that, I think it's meaningful um, just because you know, they Salevo has a pilot manufacturing facility. It's 32 megawatts, and it's in China. So it would have been easy for Solar City to just say, "Okay, we're canceling the New York facility, and we're just going to expand within China." And you know, they seem to believe that they can hit this roadmap and be competitive within the U.S. I don't think that this means you're going to see a wave of Chinese manufacturers setting up factories in the U.S. to make their standard product. That seems unlikely to me. But to the extent that there are other highly proprietary, generally high efficiency and and hopefully low-cost technologies out there like Selexel or a couple of others, it's possible they could get scaled up in the U.S. as well. Mm. But this But this deal doesn't get done without the Chinese tariffs. That's an interesting point. I'm not entirely sure I agree with that. I mean, I know that SolarCity and Salivo were talking – prior to this new round of tariffs being in place. So it seems to me that it's icing on the cake more than it is the driving factor. Um, I, you could be right, but but I know that that's not 
the only thing that Solar City is considering in doing this. Because if that were, then I think you would be right. They would just make supply agreements with companies like REC or Cineva or you know whoever else. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Well, fascinating topic. Huge development for the industry. Still a lot of uh, questions, and I'm glad that Shale and Jigger could kind of debate this because there are two solar experts. Shale, thanks so much for coming on. Great discussion. Really appreciate it. Sure. Thanks for having me, guys. Okay, I want to take a break here to recognize our sponsor, eGauge Systems, which is a manufacturer of next-generation energy meters. By combining a revenue-grade energy meter, a data logger, and web server into one fully integrated device, eGauge provides real-time access to second-by-second data presented on a user-friendly interface. eGauge is an ideal solution to monitor and view as many as 12 circuits, all with no ongoing fees. Applications for the eGauge meter include solar generation and building demand, submetering, performance contracts, lead projects, and net zero buildings. Uh, and those can apply to a wide range of industry professionals. If you're a solar installer, a portfolio manager, investor, building management professional, HVAC contractor, data aggregator, or an energy software provider, the eGauge meter is your device. Measure every moment with eGauge. To learn more, go to www.egauge.net. Our second story deals with another Elon Musk company, Tesla. Last week, Musk made perhaps the boldest move in the history, the short history of the EV sector. He opened up hundreds of the company's patents and invited any automaker to use Tesla's technology. The reason? Competitors aren't moving fast enough to decarbonize their auto fleets, said Musk. And in the spirit of open innovation, he wanted to stimulate progress, not use patents to stifle it. So will the strategy pay off both for Tesla and the rest of the auto industry? Um, Catherine, let's turn to you first. Um, what did you make of this open patent strategy? Oh, I thought it was interesting. So in Elon Musk's blog, he says, this is the quote, our true competition is not the small trickle of non-Tesla electric cars being produced, but rather the enormous flood of gasoline cars pouring out of the world's factories every day. So really what he wants to do is is stimulate the growth of the EV sector. And if he can do that, he'll make more money. He'll make more money by selling his cars, but also make more money by selling his batteries, because that is going to be a big play for him with these batteries. So, you know, on one hand, you know, he wants to open up the market to everybody. On the other hand, like giving everybody your patents is I, you know, I'm not sure how groundbreaking that is in real terms because technology just moves so fast that by the time you release these, you know, the, the next stage is already happening. So I'm not really sure, you know, how um, cutting edge the, the patents that are being released are going to be to for new companies, but I think it will open up markets. And I mean, what he wants to do is create this flood of folks um, buying EVs, not That's right. you know to to shift the market from gasoline to electric, and I think this is a really good step in that direction. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it can't just be Tesla out there trying to build these superchargers and you know selling sixty thousand cars a year or, or less than that. You know, they, he has to create a market, and Tesla already has the brand recognition, the high quality manufacturing, and a really awesome vehicle with other plans down the road. So they already have this built-in brand, and I don't think that they should be afraid of releasing 
those patents. And actually, Nancy Fund, who's a partner at DBL Investors, had a really good quote when she was talking to uh, our editor, Eric Wessoff. And she said, anyone who's spent 10 seconds in the Tesla Fremont factory knows that the real competitive advantage Tesla enjoys does not live in a box of patents taken off the wall, but in its people, its prodigious work ethic, and its spirit to lead us into the 21st century. Little little rhetoric there, but it's actually very true. Tesla has built a killer brand, and they don't have a lot to be afraid of in terms of opening up patents. They have a lot to benefit from creating that market you talked about. Yeah, look, I mean, I do think the rhetoric matters in the sense that I do think the reason solar industry is winning is because we are attracting the best and the brightest people graduating from college today they all want to start 30-year careers including you know Catherine Hamilton's uh you know son so so I mean I I absolutely believe that if we get mindshare away from the fossil fuel industry that we're going to win and so I think that he is right that this is a good way of getting them but look I mean a lot of what he benefits from, which Catherine talked about, on his battery gigafactory is um, is getting everyone to use his technology. And the way to get everyone to use his technology is to make it easy for them to all use his technology to 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 put build their superchargers, etc., which means that the algorithms are all based on the lithium-ion batteries that he wants to build. So this is a big deal in the tech industry generally. Um, it's unprecedented, I think, in the auto sector, but more companies are opening up their their patents in the technology industry just given the pace of change and the absurd wars that we've seen in consumer electronics uh, particularly in smartphones the the hundreds of millions of dollars that companies are having to throw behind these legal wars around patents are stifling innovation and passing the costs on to consumers um a recent survey from this law firm it showed that about $120 per smartphone goes directly to paying patent royalties. So so the customers are paying for these very expensive legal battles. And on the EV side, when cars are still fairly exp- or still very expensive, a company like Tesla can't afford to go through those kinds of battles. Yeah, you look at what Google did with Android and just having open platforms, and I think it's definitely created much more innovation, and I, I think I'm sure that this will happen in this situation as well. Yeah, I mean, I hope that, you know, that the that the outcome here is that we're congratulating him. I think this is a good good move for all of us. Yeah. Five or six years ago, it seemed like every major oil company was touting its investments in renewable energy. Exxon was pushing algae, BP had solar, wind, and biofuels, and Chevron was a big player in geothermal. Here's a 2010 ad from Chevron touting its renewables investments. It was one of many from oil majors on the air at that time. Okay, listen. Somebody has got to get serious. Well, I think that, uh, we need renewable, renewable energy. energy is vital to our planet. You hear about alternatives, right? Wind, solar, algae. I think it's going to work on a big scale, and I think it's going to be affordable. So, where are they? It has to work in the real world. At Chevron, we're investing millions in solar and biofuel technologies to make it work. we got to get on this now. Right now. Since then, the funding has dried up at all of those companies. Most recently, Chevron and BP said they were completely pulling out of the renewables business, but leaving some small R&D dollars aside for biofuels. The oil companies say they are focused on their core business. 
Meanwhile, climate scientists say we're reaching a warming tipping point and we need to leave fossil fuels in the ground. People like Jigger Shaw say, screw them. Let's create some climate wealth without the oil companies and leave them in the dust. Jigger used to work at BP Solar when it was a sizable player in the market in the early 2000s. And he has a new opinion piece out about the continued pullback from renewables among oil companies. His advice, if you're looking for a job in renewables, stay away from these oil companies. They just don't care about the industry. Jigger, elaborate on that for me. What made you write this piece? Well, you know, there is an extraordinary alumni, alumni network of BP Solar. I mean, just some of the best people uh, in the marketplace. And a lot of folks still work in the industry today. I think, you know, folks like Mark Twidel, who runs the Australian Solar Institute and others. But I think that where we are today is if you're one of the best and brightest that we were talking about earlier, graduating from college, and you've got two offers, one from, you know, a Sun Edison and one from a uh, BP Solar, I think you really want to take the Sun Edison offer because, you know, you think about the CFO um, of these companies and they're all back to basics. You know, the the renewable energy stuff is literally the very last priority on their priority list and it's not where you want to be. Yeah, there's this quote in a Bloomberg story from an analyst who said, renewables for oil companies are sort of like the coffee shop inside Bloomingdale's. It's on their list of priorities, but it will always be on the bottom. Uh, and that is absolutely true. I mean, it's shown – so in, at Chevron, for example, they, uh, their renewables group pr- had an after-tax profit of $27 million, and uh, that doubled their target for 2013. But uh, you know, they're seeing only you know, 20% returns when in oil and gas drilling they can see 30 35% returns. So renewables will always be that stepchild for their business, even though they do have the expertise, though. I mean, when Chevron really got into geothermal – they have the drilling rigs, they have the geologists, they have the, the drilling engineers. I mean, I would argue that geothermal really is a core piece of their business. The problem is it's just not offering the type of returns they get out of oil and gas. Well, and- but, that's, but that's the worst part of it. So I was talking to several of my friends at BP, and they were saying that about 10% of their budget that they invest every year, which is about $30 billion, so this would be $3 billion, um, of the very last stuff they invest in, has such a high-risk, low-return profile that they shouldn't do the deals. But because they have so much bravado and so much ego, they do them anyway. And this is – you saw Shell CEO talking about how the Arctic drilling was a dog, but it was all about penis size, you know, the shale Wait, gas what? investments. No, I don't – dog and penis size? What, <laughs> what did he say? Yeah, I mean like when, when <laughs> Shell CEO left um, last year – in his last hurrah interviews, he talked about how the Arctic drilling was a dog. They lost tons of money in it, but they did it because it's like, you know, the, ch- the chest pounding that those guys do in the oil industry. And the same thing's true with his shale investments in the U.S., where they were a big dog. That's why they had to do a profit warning. So the sad thing is, is they're choosing bad investments over good investments. I mean, that's the worst part about it. They're actually deliberately taking riskier investments that they might lose money on because they hate renewable energy so much. Yeah, and I think that some of these guys are rebranding um, slightly differently. So BP, I know, used to be Beyond Petroleum, and now it's back to petroleum. But API, the um, American Petroleum Institute, which is kind of the trade association for all these folks, 
Um, I recently went to a briefing that they did, and they talk about energy. They don't talk about oil and gas. They say energy. We're energy citizens. This is an energy nation. This is energy tomorrow. Everything is about energy. So they, you know, even though energy only includes a couple of things, um, they've they've branded it such that it makes it seem like it's much more bigger. And they, you know, they use all terms like all of the above, which actually taints that term all of the above because it really isn't all of the above. Um, but that said, I do think that other than geothermal and, you know, some of these um, specific instances we are using technologies in a similar workforce, you know, it really is a different workforce, uh, different sets of technologies and a different level in, of investment and also different policies, except for a master limited partnership, which now the renewables folks are trying to get. Um, there are very different kinds of policies that drive uh, that drive these industries. So I think, um, you know, I, I can kind of understand if they feel like they're at risk, then they need to focus on what they do best, you know, from a business standpoint. Right. Hey, Jigger, do you ever see a scenario where young people coming up in the workforce could actually influence the decisions that some of these companies make? Well, I mean, I, certainly it does. I think that when you look at BP's trajectory, the reason that they give $500 million, a billion dollars to Stanford, Princeton, et cetera, for these research institutes is not just because they want access to the academics. They really do it because they're trying to show their brand to these students so these students will think about working for them when they graduate. I mean, they've been doing this for 15 years in a and it shows their weakness in the marketplace. And so they've been trying to figure out how to correct these things. The average age of people working for the oil industry has gone up uh, markedly so that it's close to sort of the late 40s, early 50s. So they're having a really hard time. Even the students they do get seem to be leaving after three or four years. And so absolutely that could have an impact. But these CFOs are not young and they're, they're certainly not going to be replaced anytime soon. And a lot of these CFOs are saying, look, it doesn't matter what the rate of return is for your geothermal or solar or wind. It's just not our core business. Mm-hmm. Let's wrap up the show and uh, tell our listeners something they do not know. Jigger, let's start with you this week. So um, I was officially um, confirmed by the Senate yesterday in uh, New York to be on the board of NYSERDA. All right. Oh, Congratulations. That's great. Awesome. So, you know, so that that may not be something folks folks know. I'm not sure that I get a title with that, though. Am I now the honorable or something? I don't know. But uh, <laughs> but I am Senate confirmed. And so that's fun. Oh, very cool. Did you have to go through a major grilling process? No, it's one of those things where they confirm 100 people at a time, I think. <laughs> nice. Hey, congratulations. That's great. Catherine, tell us something we don't know. Ooh, speaking of confirmation, this is the U.S. Senate and this is FERC. So FERC, an agency that normally uh, nobody really notices or cares about, has has become super political. And there was this enormous drama, you know, first about Ron Bins being um, offered up as chairman, uh, skipping over the existing commissioners um, and then f- falling, you know, without you know having to withdraw his name. Then Norman Bay who is an investigator within FERC. Um, he's a compliance guy, has been there a long time, uh, was also offered up, offered up by President Obama to be chairman, and it caused a big kerfuffle in the Senate. So today, this is hot off the press, um, acting chairman Lafleur 
His term was also up in June of this year, and the commissioners serve five-year terms. She was just reconfirmed for another five-year term, and she's also going to continue to be acting chair for what they think is going to be nine months, after which time the the new baby, who will be Norman Bay, will be born as chairman of the FERG. So then he will eventually rise up to be chairman. But right now she's going to stay as the acting chair. He is he has been confirmed as a commissioner, and eventually he'll rise to be the chair. That was the deal, this kind of strange deal that was cut with the White House. Uh, the other commissioners that are there, um, Commissioner Mueller, uh, his term doesn't expire till 2015, Clark 2016, and Norris 2017. So you know, they, they stagger them so that at any one time there's not – not too much drama, but this time uh, it ended up being uh, pretty interesting. And Norman Bay was um, the reason he was, there was any controversy is that in the course of his investigation and his job, he did a lot of energy trading investigations and he, you know, looked into JP Morgan and Barclays, which uh, some of the Republicans did not like. Forget election season. FERC is the hottest political story of 2014. (laughs) I know. It's awesome. (laughs) One of our listeners sent me a stat that I thought was worth sharing for mine, uh, and it was pretty relevant to our Tesla conversation. Uh, Matthew Klippenstein, an engineer who works on uh, fuel cell vehicles and writes on transportation issues, recently calculated the number of miles driven by Nissan Leaf and Tesla owners and um, the electric miles from the Chevy Volt hybrid. So far, they've clocked 1.25 billion miles driven, a distance further than Saturn, which I thought was really interesting. It doesn't really speak to how small EVs still are, but it's a cool stat, so I wanted to share it. Yeah, that's awesome. I love it. I want to go to Saturn, <laughs> but not but not in a Saturn. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> that, that brand is dead now. I remember when I graduated from college, you had to buy a Saturn. Yeah, they were like hot then, right? All right, that's all for the show. Thanks so much for listening and uh, for many of you being with us from our first show a year ago. Thank you also to eGage Systems for sponsoring this program. We really do appreciate their support. For links to resources we chatted about, click on over to greentechmedia.com slash podcast. And if you're interested in sending comments or story ideas, shoot me an email. I'm at Lacey, L-A-C-E-Y, at greentechmedia.com, and I will pass things along to the rest of the gang and we'll share them. Catherine Hamilton, enjoy the rest of your extremely hot week in D.C., yeah, I was just going to say stay cool because it's all of a sudden hot as hell in D.C. Yeah. Are you going to any baseball games? Sweating yes, through any games? Sunday. I'm taking all my kids. Oh, nice. It'll be nice out. I'm going to a game Friday against the Braves. So. Great. Yeah, be... Got to kill the Braves. <laughs> Jigger Shaw, I think you're traveling again this week. So safe travels wherever you're going. Congratulations on NYSERDA and uh, hope it's cooler wherever you're going. Thanks. Good luck to the U.S. Uh, soccer team. They, uh, you know, beat Ghana, and now they're facing Portugal here on Sunday. So, I'll be watching with Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw. I'm Stephen Lacey, and we are the Energy Gang, a production of GreenTechMedia.com. We'll catch you next week. Mm-hmm.